Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey folks, just a trigger warning before we get started. This episode discusses sexual abuse and assault. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. There aren't a ton of satisfying paths to justice for students who experience sexual abuse and assault. Sometimes the issue ends with the school, sometimes it ends with police. But rarely does it end up in court. It's a harrowing experience to try to deal with this through legal means. It can take years. It can cause more emotional damage than any sense of closure it could provide. So what happens when a student goes through something so horrible that they choose that last option? And what happens when a case not only ends up in a courtroom, but a student is in a legal battle with their school district? Today, we're going to dig into one rare case in San Jose and talk about the hard choices that students have when they try and find justice. In your experience, when a student makes an allegation of sexual harassment or assault, what are just some of the things that can happen after that? So I think that when a student decides that they want to report abuse, they'll often go to, first, someone they trust. Holly J. McDeed is a reporter and producer for KQED. It's more rare that they'll decide to tell their school. Often students won't report to their school because they don't want the police involved. Mm -hmm. So I think the legal system, very much one of the last options that victims will choose to go through. A common statistic that's often cited is that of a thousand cases of sexual assault, only about 300 are ever reported to the police. Hmm. That's adults. So I would expect it to be even less instances where where young people, where teenagers are going to the police. And how often does the school actually get sued as it relates to allegations of sexual harassment or assault that involving students? It's very rare, I think, in part because students 
need to show a lot of things. For one, that the school was aware of what happened and that their response in some way was inadequate and that the abuse occurred. So it's extremely difficult to be able to make the case that all of that has happened. How do these cases usually go if they do end up in the legal system? An overwhelming majority end in settlements, so they will not end up going to a jury trial. So the public often doesn't have a lot of access to the the case, the allegations, documents, things like that. It's hard to to know like what happened. I know, Holly, that you have been following this one particular case that actually did end up in a jury trial involving a school district in San Jose. Can you just walk me through what happened in that case? What are the basics? So in this case, it involves the Eastside Union School District, which is in San Jose, Piedmont Hills High School. A student at the school um, who's now 22 years old, she had been dating who she described as a very popular football player. And she says that he was physically, emotionally, sexually abusive pretty early into their relationship. Um, And then a video had begun to circulate around campus. What was in that video varies depending on, on who you ask. The victim argued that it was essentially showing her being raped Gosh, and I I know that part of the lack of clarity around what was in the video comes from the fact that um, the videos were distributed via Snapchat, right? Which just like disappears after you send it. Exactly. I mean, so, so what ended up happening in this case is that ultimately a teacher at the school referred this to the principal at the time someone named Tracy Williams, who is also related to the the boy alleged to have made the video. Hmm. Um, And so she had school staff investigate. The school district ended up looking into how the principal handled this case, and they ultimately reprimanded her for the way she handled it. They also reprimanded her for showing up during a juvenile court proceeding to support the student who was accused They said she should not have done that. So the district issued some corrective action at the time, saying that they'll provide staff training to ensure that school personnel fully comply with district policies um, and that they will be better trained on how to address potential conflicts of interest um, because the, the principal was related to the person accused. So they tried many, they tried many avenues um, in pursuing this. And they argue there is nothing that they found in speaking to two students at the school that would suggest that there, in fact, was a video that existed. Essentially, they're saying, like, we had no reason to believe and we did not suspect at the time that there was a video, particular video showing a young woman being being raped. They said they, at most, they had knowledge of a photograph taken of the the victim showing her and a used condom. And they said that that was not grounds, like that did not give them a reason to report it to the police. 
Okay, so that was the school's response. Um, I am curious what, what happened to the boy who was accused. The mother of the victim reported him to police, and then the boy pled guilty to not crimes related to the video. He, he pled guilty to abusing the victim. What is the lawsuit in this case ultimately about then? How did this end up in a jury trial? It ended up being around negligence. Like, was the school district negligent in how it responded? So the victim, her attorneys, they, they argue that the, the, the school was negligent because they argue the school should have interviewed the victim and they should have interviewed the person who allegedly made the video. And they didn't do that. And also, they didn't report it to the, the police. They also didn't tell her mother that there may have been this video circulating around. Mm-hmm. So they argue that because of the school district's negligence, the victim continued to endure significant abuse. And therefore, she should be rewarded um, financial damages. During the trial, they estimated she would live another 60 years. And so the sum the jury should award her should match the pain she would face every year remaining in her life. So, I mean, the district's argument, um, I spoke to uh, their attorney, Mark Davis. From the firm of Davis, Bankston and Young, and we were the attorneys for Eastside Union High School District. The attorney for the district argued that the district was not negligent because how could they be negligent if they didn't have any knowledge of a pornographic video being made. Like what their argument is why would they report that to the police if they did not have reasonable suspicion that there was such a video that existed. Overall you had five school employees, all of whom received training every year on mandatory reporting and all of whom testified that based on the extremely limited information they got, they had insufficient information to have a reasonable suspicion of child abuse, which is why they they didn't report it. And that had they had a suspicion of child abuse, they would have definitely reported it. Okay, so that was the allegation and also the response to those allegations. What did the jury ultimately decide and why? So the jury ultimately decided that the district was not negligent. It was a unanimous decision. One, the matter had been appropriately investigated. Two, based on what they had, they did not have a reasonable suspicion of child abuse. Therefore, there was no duty to report anything. And third, there was no evidence to support the claim that we had somehow negligently supervised this boy on campus. Why they decided that, one can only speculate, but I mean, it seems like they were persuaded by the attorney's argument. So does this basically mean, Holly, that the victim and the family gets nothing? Yeah, the the family doesn't get any money from this case. They don't get any acknowledgement of wrongdoing. The abuse happened in 2016 and we're in 2022 now. So if you think about like what it must have taken to go through all those years, like hoping for the outcome you want and it to come of nothing. The survivor, the victim, through her attorney, I was told that uh, she didn't want to speak with me um, for this story um, out of respect for her privacy and that they're very disappointed in the outcome. 
the attorney for the the school district. I mean, of course they are pleased with the outcome. I mean, it was it was in their favor. Um, the attorney Mark Davis he mentioned that there had been times where they were still meeting, trying to hash out a, a settlement. The district made what, in my opinion, was a reasonable offer prior to trial. Uh, that was rejected and reached out even during trial to try and renew settlement talks. But at that point, the plaintiff just wanted to see what the verdict was going to be. Yeah, I mean, this is just one example of this happening. But what do you think this case shows about the rare cases when a case of sexual assault at a school actually does go to trial? I think this case shows that there is a lot to lose. I mean, it's really a gamble. So you can spend years going through this process and it can ultimately come to to nothing in the end. Coming up, some students have successfully sued their schools for how they handled assault allegations. We'll talk about those and why schools could expect more lawsuits coming their way. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. Are there any recent examples that you've seen, Holly, where a victim or a person suing um, is actually successful? Yeah, there was a very recent case in San Jose. It involved a San Jose middle school where the jury ended up awarding two women $102.5 million. I mean, so that was a case involving a middle school teacher who had allegedly groomed and abused them when they were when they were minors. Another example of a case that ended up with the victim getting damages is Berkeley Unified. The student Faith, um, she says that she had been sexually assaulted by another student at Berkeley High School. Healing is always going to take a really long time, um, especially just with what I went through. Faith is a pseudonym She's worried that being identified would put her safety at risk. You know, I'm just, you know, living the college life, you know, doing the best I can to, you know, stay on top of things, not get stressed and just um, try and get out of the Bay Area as fast as possible. 
So she had filed a lawsuit against the school district about how they responded. Similar to the Eastside Union School District case, the allegations against the district did center around um, whether they had properly notified the police and her parents. Um, the school district says they had, um, but either way, they they recently um, reached a settlement. I'm curious what she told you about why she ultimately chose to settle her case. So ultimately, she decided to settle her case because she wanted it to be over. Mm-hmm. And she felt like she had done what she wanted to do. They see us as immature and you know, not knowing what we're talking about and, you know, stuff like that. So when we, you know, shoot them in the foot with a lawsuit, they're like, oh, okay, they're serious. Like, this is about money now. She wanted to compel the school to make some changes. She wanted to make a difference. She wanted to send a positive message for her sisters. And she felt like she had done that. So she felt like she was ready to move on. But I know that I've overcome a lot and... I know that I can use what has happened to me to inspire others and to tell them my story, my testimony all the time. That's pretty much, you know, how it's all, you know, kind of coming together for me. Okay, so those are a couple of examples where students either won or got some sort of compensation through the legal system, which I imagine is rare. But I also know that getting justice in any form is just really hard for survivors. Are more and more cases actually ending up in the courts? In speaking with the the attorney for this school district, the Eastside Union School District, I mean, Mark Davis, he told me that he is seeing more cases recently related to um, school districts and how they responded to, to sexual abuse. In part, that is related to a change in state law that went into effect a few years ago that changed the statute of limitations for when um, victims can file civil suits against school districts. So we're seeing more of those cases. They're almost always cases involving school employees. I mean, it's much, 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 much easier to make the case that the district, when their employees have committed abuse against students, that they're responsible. It's way harder to persuade a jury that the school district is responsible for its students who commit abuse against other students. Less than three times have I heard a survivor say anything other than, my reason for calling a lawyer is I don't want this to happen to anybody else. So I spoke with Maha Ibrahim. Uh, She's an attorney with Equal Rights Advocates. She said that historically, victims are, they don't often go through the courts. Because survivors haven't been bringing lawsuits, they're not generally litigious, it's hard to find attorneys that practice in this area of law. Even if you do, it's a harrowing experience to try to deal with this through legal means. It can take years, it can cause more emotional damage than um, than any sense of closure it could provide. So therefore, schools she said, have not viewed how they handle sexual assault cases as a liability risk. One thing you'll notice when you look at school budgets is there's an awful lot of money that can be found to deal with things that are seen as litigation risks, but they don't seem to be able to find money to deal with things that are just huge societal problems that we need to address. She said that is 
starting to change. And, and in her view, that change can compel schools to set up better systems. People of color had very, a very hard time finding lawyers to bring cases to uh, sue for their rights at school. Um, but now uh, we are seeing traction on the school to prison pipeline issue, the policing issue. It's far from being solved, but all of a sudden schools are finding money. Um, for these issues. And I, sadly, I think it's because now these issues are seen as litigation risks. I want to talk about, Holly, what all this means going forward. Do you think we'll see more examples of people trying to hold their school districts accountable through the legal system? So I, I think we will be seeing many more lawsuits against school districts involving employees. Um, we're going to be seeing cases that are are older um, that occurred when the students were, were minor minors, now now adults. They now want the school districts to be held accountable. I don't know if we're going to see more cases, more lawsuits against school districts around how they responded to complaints against abuse involving students rather than employees. As far as deciding to file a lawsuit against their their school, I feel like it's still such a terrible, traumatic, awful experience to go through that process that I don't know that we're gonna see more of these kinds of lawsuits. Do you think these lawsuits will change how schools handle sexual assault among students? I think these lawsuits can lead to changes. Certainly, Faith, she feels that what her lawsuit did was it forced students to take notice at a really deep problem at their school. It led to a walkout. So it wasn't just that she filed a lawsuit. It's that people were paying attention. They care about their, you know, their rep and they don't want to be, you know, the district that, you know, didn't follow through with something because they didn't listen to their students. I think it really depends. I think often schools do have to be forced in a way to change how they do things. Holly, thank you. Thank you. That was Holly J. McDeed, a reporter and producer for KQED. I want to point you to Holly's previous conversations with us about sexual assault at Bay Area schools. In March, we actually talked with Holly about what changes students want to see around how allegations of abuse and assault are handled at schools in San Francisco. In that episode, you'll hear from survivors and the students who are organizing around institutional change. I will leave you a link to that coverage in our show notes. This 40-minute conversation with Holly was cut and edited down by producer Maria Esquinka. And editor Alan Montesilio scored this one and added all the tape. You can connect with me, Maria, and Alan on Twitter. We're at the Bay KQED. And I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Thank you so much for listening, y'all. Peace. Hi, I'm- 
I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 